Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you've never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church to connect with, you belong here. There are so many great things going on at Collective right now, so make sure you are following us on social media at My Collective Church to stay in the loop. Now let's get into Sunday's message. Well, what's up, Collective? My name is Ryan. I get to be the community director at Mosaic Christian Church over in Elkridge, Maryland, not that far from here. I've had the opportunity to get to know Pastor Michael and his wife, Ray, over the past like six or seven years because him and I were both church planners before Collective ever started. We were both like in this thing, trying to figure this thing out and learning from Carl, who had launched Mosaic seven years ago, or more than that, but seven years ago, we were trying to learn from him. And so we would sit in sermon review and we would talk, we would pray together. We would spend some time together. And so I've been praying for you guys before I ever knew you, before this place ever existed. And um, my wife told me this week that you guys celebrated 150 baptisms last Sunday, which is crazy. Yeah, give it up for that. Um, And so if you volunteer here or you give here, I just want to encourage you, what you're doing didn't cause 150 people to get in the tub, but it paves the way for it. And um, God is using it in great ways. Don't take that for granted. As a person who... Uh, planted a church and led it for five years. Let me tell you, like 150 is not normal. To be five and a half years in and see God move in the way that he has through, in the city of Frederick through Collective is not usual, but it is what's happening in this place. So keep, keep doing it, keep leaning in, keep being a part of it. Now, I know you also don't know me, so I'm going to do the obligatory thing a first-time guest preacher does at a church, and that is show you a picture of my family, all right? So here's a picture of my family, my wife and I, uh, my wife Kim, and then uh, from right to left here, yeah, my son Noah, who's six, Finney Boy, who's three, and Emma, who's four. Uh, it is a lot of chaos and a lot of crazy. We had three under three in COVID, and that just means my house is loud and crazy and chaotic and fun, uh, kind of, all right? Uh, it also means we listen to a lot of, like, Frozen and uh, kids' ministry songs and things like that. But one of the things we love doing as a family is listening to music together. Uh, When I can get my daughter away from Frozen, when I can get uh, my son away from his kids' ministry music, my wife and I like get to pick our own music, and we love listening to it. But my kids are also in those times of life where they need to know why everything. So it's not just like, why are we driving there or why are we doing this? It's like, why are we listening to this song? Why are we listening to music at all? Who wrote this song? Why did they write this song? Why does this song exist? Why do we have a radio? And I'm like, will you just shut up and let me listen to the song, all right? Uh, either way, they, they won't shut up. They just want to know an explanation. And so we have to give them the why. And so I find myself from time to time having to explain the songs that we listen to. But the reality is I don't always know the answer. Like, I don't always know, know what that guy was going through when he wrote it or what that lady was going through that inspired those lyrics to be the thing that she's singing about. And so I do my best, but I do find myself researching some stuff. And I, I also kind of like throws me back into high school. I was in high school at a time where uh, the cool thing to do for bands, especially bands made up of Christian people, was that they weren't a Christian band, but they were a band full of Christians. Like Switchfoot did it, and then everybody tried to follow suit, and it was like cool and trendy. We're not Christian, but we're all Christians. You know what I mean? And I don't really know what they meant, but that's what they meant. Either way, I I regularly found myself listening to lyrics of their songs and trying to figure out, is this about God or is this about something else? And they came up with one song that was talking about longing for something and pursuing something and running towards something and sacrificing to get it. And I thought, oh, this is about my relationship with Jesus. I know what's going on here. I know what they were going for. And I remember like 
having like a worshipful moment on my own about that thing. And then I talked to my buddy who was the drummer, and he goes, that song's about our lead singer's struggle with the refrigerator. And I was like, I can relate to that too, but just not the same way that I want to pursue Jesus. Um, but I definitely get a struggle with food. Either way, it's like, oh, I don't always know what these songs are about. Now, my son listens to country music at six. Pray for him, all right? Uh, it's my fault, but either way. Uh, either way, it, those songs aren't complex. So if you're like, I listen to country music. I've never had this struggle of knowing what songs are about. Right, you listen to country. It's, it's okay, all right? It is Frederick. I get it. Um, in, in any case, I'm not taking shots. I'm kind of taking shots, but it's fine. Um, my wife got the chance to see Ed Sheeran a couple months ago, and one of the cool things that happened with that concert uh, was that Ed Sheeran's uh, opening act, one of his opening acts, had a car accident on the way, and he's fine. Um, but what it meant is that Ed decided, I'm going to be my own opening act. Instead of just like adding one or two songs and just making it a shorter night, he came out and said, I'm going to play as my own opening act. And I'm going to assume like opening acts do that you don't know my music and that you don't know why I wrote my music. And so I want to give you a little bit of background and a little bit of history to the song that you're listening to so that you can better understand it. And then he sang a bunch of stuff off his new album, Subtract, and he sang things like um, the song Curtains, and he talked about the song being dedicated to the people in his life who are good friends who show up in bad times and help pull back the curtains of darkness in his life and allow him to see the light of day again. He talked about the songs that he wrote, like when he found out his wife had cancer and how they expressed the pain and the depth of questions that he had. And then he talked about the song Dusty. And this was a song that my wife had been like, I'm not really that interested in the song. It has a couple lyrics that just don't make a whole lot of sense. Like the tagline of the song is like, um, the tagline of the song was like, you know, just drop the needle on Dusty. And she's like, I don't really know that I know what he's talking about. But he came out, and before he played the song, here's what he said about it. He said, I wrote this song um, about waking up in the mornings with my eldest daughter. I would get up late from being at Jamal's mural. Now, Jamal was a friend of his who had passed away. And I would cry myself to sleep. And then hours later, I'd be woken up by an energetic, beautiful, smiling girl. It was a real juxtaposition. Children are incredible at how they can just bring so much joy into dark situations without even knowing it. And I took her downstairs, and we'd make breakfast, and we'd put a vinyl record on. And every morning we do this, she chooses it, then he quotes a song, flick a finger, start a discussion to pick a singer, and then the singer we picked that particular morning was Dusty Springfield. So we dropped the needle on Dusty. And that explanation in and of itself added such a richness and a value to what my wife was listening to. It completely changed the way that she listens to that song. It moved it from like a song that she was like, ah, I might decide to skip it, to a song that she's like, no, I get it. I get what he was going through. I've had moments in my life like that where I'm faced with like great joy in one hand and like great pain in the other. And this song actually helps me process that now because I understand where this comes from. And you go, what does Ed Sheeran have to do with the gospel? Well, here's the reality. Today in our like series of TLDR, we're going to take a look at the guy named David in the Bible. Now, David is in like a big part of the Old Testament. His lineage ultimately leads to Christ. He's a major player all throughout Scripture. And he goes through some of the like, deepest lows and the highest highs. And then the thing that really set David apart was that he was a poet. He's a songwriter. And all of his poems and songs, or many of them, are captured in what we know in Scripture as the book of Psalms. And he wrote over 90 of them where he just helps, uh, he, he really just processes what he's dealing with. But I believe that it has the opportunity to help us process what we deal with in life. Because when David goes through the highest of highs, how does he process them? We'll look at that today. Because some of us walk in going, life's pretty good and God's been good to me and I need to know how do I process that. David also faces like great injustice and things going wrong and things not making sense. And you may be in that position going, how do I process that? David's going to show you this morning. 
You may go, my problem is not so much about what's out there, it's going, what's going on in here or up here. And David's going to show us something about that today too. But to kind of set up the story of David, let me just give you like the quick overview of his story. All right. Um, he's one of seven brothers. He's the youngest. He has two sisters. We don't really know where they fall in the order. He's the son of a farmer and a shepherd named Jesse. Uh, he becomes a shepherd himself. He's a musician. He's anointed as king by the prophet Samuel, but that doesn't make any sense because he's not in line to be king, but the prophet anoints him anyway. He eventually winds up becoming king. His brothers go off to war. Then he goes to check on his brothers. While, his, while he's there, uh, he kills a giant. He defends a nation. He serves the king by playing music for him. Scripture says that the king would be tormented by awful thoughts, and David would come in and play the harp to help calm him down. David becomes best friends with the king's son, and the king tries to kill him multiple times. At one point, it says that Saul tried to pin David to the wall with a spear. That's pretty intense. David runs away. That makes sense. Um, he goes on the run. Take, uh, he goes on the run. The king hunts him down. Eventually, David takes over as king. He sleeps with his neighbor. He kills her husband. He has a child that dies. One of his kids tries to kill him. He finds himself back on the run. Uh, he takes back over his kingdom. He reigns for a total of 40 years. He blesses his son Solomon before giving him the kingdom. And then he dies in peace and his lineage leads on to Christ. So in the next four and a half hours, we're going to break down the life of David. Um, if you were in kids ministry first service, you're like, yeah, it took you about four and a half hours to get through that. I know I was over and I'm sorry. That's on me. It's not okay. But I do appreciate you. And uh, thanks for what you do. Um, <laughs> in any case, it's like awkward moment. You're like, you just recognize what I feel. Yeah. Um, we're going to take a look at three moments in David's life. All right. Uh, one, where he experiences great joy. A second one, where he experiences deep pain and confusion. And a third, where he addresses his own struggles. Um, the first one is David and Goliath. You may have heard this story before, but I'm going to go over it just real briefly. David and Goliath, uh, this is at the moment where David's a shepherd. He's been anointed by Samuel to become the next king, but he doesn't really know what that looks like, and he doesn't really see a path of how he's going to get there. And so he goes back to being a shepherd. He finds himself back out in the field. His three oldest brothers go off to war um, alongside King Saul and the rest of the Israelites. Uh, at one point, Jesse, his dad, calls him over and goes, David, I want you to go check on your brothers. I have some food that I prepared for them, some bread, some cheese, some grain, some different things. I want you to take it to your brothers. I want you to encourage them, and I want you to care for them. And so David uh, leaves his sheep with another shepherd, and he takes this food and his uh, pack mules, I'm guessing, uh, out to the battlefield. And as he's getting to the battlefield, he rolls up, and there's a guy named Goliath who is known to be extremely tall. That's like the history. We, the scripture actually says they believe he was like nine feet tall, which is just insane to think about. But Goliath would come out, and he was part of the Philistine army. That's the army that the Israelites are going against. And he would come out for 40 days and issue this challenge. Pick one fighter to fight me, and whoever wins, that army wins. There's no reason to shed more blood. There's no reason to make this more chaotic. I will fight that one person. Obviously, I'll win because I'm the best. And then you guys will all be subject to the Philistines. And for 40 days, he issues that kind of challenge. He makes fun of their God. He makes fun of their people. He calls them a bunch of weaklings and small people and all those things that you can imagine would happen kind of in a locker room setting of a war situation. And nobody comes out. Nobody challenges them. They all tremble in fear. It says that the Israelites hide. David rolls up as Goliath's issuing this challenge for that day. And David goes, who's going to fight the guy? And they're all like, shut up, David. And he's like, no, but seriously, like he's insulting our God. Who's going to go after him? And they're like, 
Leave it alone. He goes, if you guys won't, then I will. Right? And so he winds his way up to King Saul, and King Saul goes, I'm glad you're volunteering, small child, but what qualifies you to like go out there? And he goes, listen, when I'm a shepherd, there's days where I have to defend my sheep. And there's been times where I've had to defend my sheep against a lion, and I've won. There's days where I've had to defend my sheep against a bear, and I've been successful. And the reality is the man insulted our God, and God is going to stand with me as I defend his name, not anything else. And I have more faith in who God is and that God will be present with me than I have faith that that guy is much bigger than me. And so Saul goes, okay, I guess. You can go fight him. But you don't have any armor. So Saul tries to put his armor on David. Saul's bigger than David. And David's like, none of this stuff fits. It's not really going to work. It says that David goes down to the stream. He finds five smooth stones uh, to put in his slingshot. And he comes back to go against the giant. It says that Goliath comes out with a bronze helmet, a giant sword, all kinds of armor, and is like clearly, clearly much bigger. I imagine, like if I'm picturing this, Shaq on one side and my five foot six wife on the other. And you're like, maybe your wife knows jujitsu. She doesn't. Like there's, there's no win for her. Like you put a big sword in Shaq's hand, he just has extended his reach by eight feet on her. And you're like, that's a mismatch. Clearly, it's a mismatch. But scripture tells us that David puts one of those stones in a slingshot. He whips it around. He launches it at Goliath and hits him in the center of the forehead, knocks him unconscious. Goliath falls to the ground. David takes his sword and cuts his head off. And then, in a moment, the Israelites have defeated the Philistines. And the people start to celebrate. The men celebrate on the battlefield. The stories start to get back to the town. When the people actually get back to the town, it says that they were chanting and cheering for David. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Like, they are just celebrating David in this moment. Saul gets insecure. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. David is being celebrated as a man who showed up and defeated people. And when everybody in the nation is trying to celebrate David, David pauses to do something different. And I think it has the opportunity to teach us, what do we do when people want to celebrate us? What do we do when things are going well? What do we do when we find ourselves in a place of great joy? In that place, David sits down and he writes Psalm 9. And here's what he says. I will praise you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all the marvelous things you have done. I will be filled with joy because of you. I will sing praises to your name almost high. The Lord is a shelter for the oppressed and a refuge in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you. For you, O Lord, don't abandon those who search for you. See, David, in this great moment of victory, when everything's going right, where all the people are praising him, he chooses to shift his focus from self-praise to the praise of a heavenly God. In a moment where everybody's praising David, David chooses to praise God for showing up and showing off. If you find yourself in a place where things have been good, where life is going well right now, where it seems like things are together, you know that moment won't last forever, but in that moment, I would challenge you, slow down and praise God for being good. Now, the second story comes a little bit later, kind of as a response to Saul has killed his thousands, David his ten thousands. Saul gets jealous. He's a really insecure leader. I don't know if you've ever worked for one of those or been around one of those, or maybe it's your parent, and if they're here, don't nudge them. Just understand that we all understand what it is to be around insecure people 
who process through a lens that we don't really understand at times. But Saul processes his insecurity, and he gets angry at David. And it says that at times, he winds up inviting David to come play the harp for him. It says that at times, David would play the harp, and Saul would uh, be calm, and then all of a sudden, Saul would like snap. It says he tried to pin him to the wall with the spear, which is just crazy. And uh, all, David finds himself on the run, hiding in caves and behind mountains to get away from King Saul as King Saul hunts him down with all of his men. And at one point in that running, in one point in that sleeping uh, in a cave, David uh, goes to get priestly wisdom. And he goes to the priest named Ahimelech. And he, and he goes to Ahimelech and he asks him to pray for him. And he asks him for food. And he asks him for any weapons if he has them. And Ahimelech goes, why, why is nobody else with you? And he goes, I'm on the run. He doesn't tell him he's on the run from Saul, but he just tells him he's on the run. And Ahimelech uh, kind of hooks him up. He gives him some food from the temple. And then he gives him Goliath's sword because he said, this is the only weapon I have. And he goes, that'll work. And then David kind of retreats to the cave. Saul finds out that David was nearby and begins to freak out on his people. Like his men, he goes, you let that traitor come so close to us. And nobody's taking him out. What are you doing? And nobody speaks up because they're like, we didn't see him. We didn't know where he was. Where is he? And then one guy named Doeg, which is a strange name, but this guy named Doeg, who's a herdsman for King Saul uh, and his men, he speaks up and he goes, I saw Ahimelech praying with him in the, in the court today. And Saul goes, go get Ahimelech and the priest. They're betraying me. And Ahimelech and all the priests come before Saul and he flips out on him and he yells, how dare you help that traitor? And they're like, who in this kingdom has been more faithful to you than David? Like there's literally a time and a moment where David is hiding up in a cave. This is like some Navy SEAL stuff, all right? David is holed up in a cave. Saul has to go to the bathroom. He goes into the cave for some privacy, does not know that David is in there. David crawls up behind him, cuts off the back of his coat while he's going to the bathroom. Saul finishes his business, goes out of the cave, and David comes out and goes, hey, Saul, I had every chance to kill you, and I didn't because I'm trying to honor you. And even cutting off your coat, I dishonored you, so let me just repent for cutting off the, the coat. I just want you to know that I'm not coming after you. And Saul like, feels remorseful in a moment, apologizes, and then five days later finds himself hunting down David again. But David is on the run. Saul gets Ahimelech to come to him, and he goes, why have you betrayed me? And Ahimelech is like, nobody's been more faithful to you than David. What are we talking about? And Saul goes, that man is a traitor. And then he orders his men. He's like, kill them all. Kill them all. And it says that his men don't go anywhere. They don't do anything. They won't kill God's men. And he turns to Doeg, and he goes, you do it. And it says that Doeg slaughtered 85 priests and then went to their hometowns and slaughtered their wives and their children and their animals and everything that they had. One of Ahimelech's sons escapes, runs to the cave where David is, and tells David the story. And David weeps and screams in anger and in frustration. And in processing all of it, he sits down and writes Psalm 17. And in Psalm 17, he says, God, I am praying to you because I know you will answer me. Bend down and listen as I pray. Show me your unfailing love in wonderful ways. By your mighty power, you rescue those who seek refuge from their enemies. So God, guard me as you would guard your own eyes. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Protect me from wicked people who attack me, from murderous enemies who surround me. And then he wraps it up by saying, Arise, O Lord. 
Arise and stand against them and bring them to their knees. Rescue me from the wicked with your sword. See, when David experiences like a great moment of injustice with all kinds of uncertainty, in the moments where it's clearly not fair, we see him bring God all of his fear. We see him plead with the Lord. We see him trust that God's going to deliver him and that God's going to listen to him. And we see him have faith in the goodness of God. When David finds himself deeply angry with his situation and the world he lives in, he doesn't go, God, this is all your fault. Instead, he says, God, fight alongside me because the world I live in is broken. I feel like I can relate to that. Like when I, when I look at my niece who has a disease that doesn't make any sense, I go, God, will you help me fight this thing? I'm not blaming you, but will you fight alongside me because that's not good? When one of my, good, when one of my friends at church finds out that he has cancer and that he has two kids my kid's age and he's not gonna make it, I'm like, God, will you show up? Because I, I can sit with him, but I can't do anything to heal him. And God, I hate cancer, and I know you're not a fan of it either, so will you show up and help? When I look at broken situations and broken families and hurting people and the pregnancy test that doesn't come back positive over and over and over again, I can't fix all of those things, but I can go to God, not shaking my fist at him, but shaking my fist alongside him at the brokenness in the world around me and going, God, will you please just show up? It's what David models. What do we do when we're angry with our situation? What do we do when we're weeping and when we're sad? He brings it all to God. And it's one thing to like learn about how do we deal with the moments of goodness and how do we deal with the moments of sadness, but how do we deal with the moments where we're the broken thing? It's not just brokenness out there, it's brokenness in here. See, that, that moment comes for David once he's taken over as king. So eventually, God removes Saul and puts David in power and David takes over as king, and his people are going off to war. And the king is supposed to be off at war. The king is supposed to be with his people, not so much on the front lines of the battlefield, but think about like the movie Gladiator. Like the king is sitting all the way at the back, overseeing what's happening and representing his kingdom. That's where David's supposed to be, but he decides not to go. He takes a passive approach of, I don't really feel like doing it. And we find him one night walking out on the balcony uh, of his palace. And you go, yeah, that makes sense. That's what you would have done. But really what's going on here is that women of that day would have run baths in the morning because they don't have any hot water. They would have let it heat up on the rooftop all day long. And then they would take baths in the evening. So this is like a 4,000 year ago version of looking at porn that David finds himself in. When he walks out on his palace rooftop, he knows exactly what he's going to see. He's going to see multiple women in his city taking a bath. His neighbor is named Bathsheba, and he thinks she looks the best. He sends for her, he sleeps with her, and then a few weeks later, he hears the two words that scare him the most, I'm pregnant. And he goes, I got a plan to take care of this. There's no reason that anybody needs to know about this. And so he sends for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. He's off on the battlefield, being one of David's faithful warriors. He says, Uriah, I want you to come home, and I want to thank you for being on the battlefield. I want you to spend some time with your wife. And Uriah goes and sleeps on his own doorstep. He won't even go into his own house. And David hears about it in the morning. He goes, Uriah, what are you doing? I brought you home. It's, it's okay. You don't have to sleep on the doorstep. And Uriah goes, no, my men are faithful and they're fighting out there. I don't want to be distracted. 
And David's like, well, let's have some drinks and let's party and let's do things. And everything that he did, Uriah still wouldn't go into his home and be with his wife because he didn't want to be a distraction from the men that were out on the battlefield. And so David sits down and he writes a note that says, send Uriah to the front of the battlefield where it's most intense. And when it gets its craziest, pull back everybody. And then he seals it with the king's stamp and then he hands it to Uriah to take to the front line to his commanding officer. And Uriah, unknowingly to him, carries his own death note to his commanding officer. His commanding officer reads it and I just wonder if he thought like, what did he do to piss off the king? Either way... He follows the order. So he puts Uriah up at the front line, and then in the most intense moment, he pulls everybody back. Uriah dies. And then David moves from like the man who cheated to all of a sudden like the caring king who's able to take care of the widow who's also pregnant. And so David brings Bathsheba into his own house, and he begins to take care of her and all those things. And he thinks, I got away with this. Nobody knows. But God isn't good with that plan. And God sends the prophet Nathan to come to him. And Nathan comes to David and he tells him this long story that's a, a, about a man who had everything but chose to steal from the one who had a little. And he tells the whole story and he talks about the persecution that that man caused for the other guy. And he says, David, what should happen to a man like that? And David goes, he should be killed. And then Nathan goes, you're the man. You took what wasn't yours and tells him, recounts the whole story of Bathsheba and Uriah and how he murdered him. And David in that moment has really two big options. Do I react in insecurity like Saul? Because if he did, he could just kill the priest. He could just kill the prophet. He could get rid of him. He could kill everybody in the palace court if he wants to and just start afresh. But he doesn't. He chooses to react with humility and with sorrow and with regret. And this thing is he's been hiding and trying to keep beneath the surface is now in the light and instead of running from it, he runs to God to deal with it. And he writes Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, he's overwhelmed with regret. He says, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me and clean me from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a place where like, your sin and your shame has haunted you day and night. You find yourself waking up at two in the morning going, I hope nobody finds out about that thing. You find yourself at four in the morning checking your email as a way to just escape like the chaos of your mind. David recognizes that. He says, against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what's evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say and your judgment against me is just. Like he recognizes I am wrong and you are right, God. And then he makes a request of God. He says, purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Give me back my joy again. You have broken me, now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. See, David models for us, what do we do when we have sin? What do we do when we carry guilt? When we realize we're covered in shame, he could have ran. He could have been insecure. He could have reacted in, in anger, but he chooses to repent. And he models for us in Psalm 51 what it looks like for us to repent. He goes to God and he says, have mercy on me. He owns his own sin. He says, I recognize my rebellion. And then he prays that God would purify him and forgive him. And ultimately, he trusts God. 
Like every one of those 151 baptisms, when, when they get in this tub, that's what they're doing. They're going, I'm recognizing that I have sinned against the God of the universe and I need forgiveness and I need grace and nothing I can do can make me right. So God, I'm taking your offer of grace if you'll give it to me. And when they make that decision and they check that box and say, I'm interested in giving my life to Christ, what they're saying is I'm receiving God's grace and, I'm st- and, and in turn, I'm submitting to him as I move forward. But if you think about those three stories, many of us find ourselves in one of those three places. Maybe we're going through great joy. Life has been good. Things are going well. God has shown favor to us. And if that's you, I would just encourage you, give glory to God. Don't hold it all for yourself. Some of you would say you're living in uncertain times where things are unfair and unjust. You have so many doubts about the world both around you and in you. And if you find yourself there, trust God and be angry. It is good that the world being broken bothers you. It bothers the God of the universe too. But don't shake your fist at him. Shake your fist with him uh, at the brokenness in our world and and, and know that he sees it. And that some of us are in that third position where you go, the brokenness isn't so much out there, it's within me. And I've got to deal with that. And if that's you, follow David's example. Stop running and choose to repent. If you haven't already, check the baptism box on your connection card. Drop it in the basket on the way out, and somebody from the team is going to reach out to you this week and make sure you understand what it means for you to follow Jesus, and they're going to help you actually submit to him. You will not regret that decision. But here's the thing. We're in a series called TLDR, and I just preached for about 24 minutes. And you may be going, I checked out at minute two. What is this message about? Let me give you three or four really practical things to walk away. If you missed everything else, here's a few practical things you can walk away with. Regardless of your situation, I want to encourage you, as you come to the God of the universe, pay attention to what you're feeling. If you have moments of joy, feel them and express them. If you're in moments of sadness, express them too. Pay attention to what is going on within me. I literally start most of my days in prayer, checking in with the God of the universe about the emotions that I feel. It's a really simple exercise. I take a few deep breaths. I try to pay attention to what am I feeling? Where am I feeling into my body? And then I use six core emotions. Sad, angry, scared, happy, excited, and tender. And I go, God, I'm sad, and I'm scared, and I'm excited, and here's why. And then I just unpack it a little bit. And I'm not informing him of something he didn't know. I'm connecting with him through what I'm learning about myself. But David, in every single one of his prayers, whether it was joyous or sorrow, whether it was sinful or repentant, David knows what he's feeling. And some of us are like, I don't pay attention to what I'm feeling because my emotions lie to me. I don't want to pay attention to them. I don't want to listen to them. Don't let that be you. Pay attention to what you're feeling. Second, pray authentically. Once you've paid attention to what you're feeling, pray those things. If you're sad, be sad. God doesn't need you to be happy for him to be happy with you. But if you're overjoyed, be overjoyed. If you're angry at the brokenness you experienced, then be angry at the brokenness you experienced. If you're repentant and guilty, own your sin and be repentant. 
Pray authentically to the God of the universe. Like bring everything, all of you, to him. And then the third thing David does is he petitions God. In every one of these prayers, in every one of these psalms, David takes the time to make asks of the God of the universe and begins to petition God on the things he wants to see. So when he was joyous, he petitions God that God would keep showing up in the way he expects. When he's sorrowful and angry, he petitions God that he would move in the ways that David can't. When he's repentant and exposed and covered in his own shame, he prays that God would forgive what he can't relieve. He says, God, I need you to deliver me because I can't deliver myself in these moments. So I need you to show up. And I think there's some of us in here who have done those. You've paid attention and you check in with God. You pray authentically and you, you bring your full self to him and you, you come to him and you pour yourself out in front of him and you petition him, God, I need you to heal. God, I need you to move. God, I need the marriage. God, I need a relationship. God, I've swiped right on every person that I can and nobody else has done it for me. God, I'm tired of being lonely. I'm tired of being empty. I'm tired of the bank account being so stressed out. I'm tired of the job the way it is. God, I need life to be different. And you've done those three steps. And you're like, Ryan, check, check, check. What else do you want from me? Here's what God says. Don't give up. Galatians 6, 9 says, let us not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Some of you in here are wondering, you may be wondering, I'm in the position of Psalm 51. And I'm being called out this morning and I need to be repentant and I'm willing to hear that God might forgive me. But Ryan, you really haven't shown me that God forgives me. When David comes to God in Psalm 51, we see um, throughout the story of David that God actually does forgive David of the sin that he commits with Bathsheba and the sin he commits against Uriah. God continues to use him as king. He continues to reinstate his power. There are consequences of David's decision on earth, but that God redeems his soul. And in response to all of that, David sits down in Psalm 103 and writes about the forgiveness and the joy that it brings him. He says, let all that I am praise the Lord. With my whole heart, I'll praise his holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things he does for me. He forgives all my sins and he heals all my diseases. He redeems me from death and he crowns me with love and tender mercies. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. He's slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He doesn't punish us for all our sins. He doesn't deal harshly with us as we deserve. He's removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a good father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. So if you're here this morning and the thing you connected with more than anything is a recognition of the sin within you and you've never checked the box to get baptized, I would challenge you to follow what Jesus told us to do and check the box, get in the tub and give your life to Christ. And if you're wondering, can God actually forgive me? The story of David shows us that regardless of who you are and regardless of what you've done, we serve a God who forgives and a God who chooses to love and a God who chooses to extend grace. So don't let today be the, let today be the day where you go, I'm gonna walk out of here different because I'm gonna start actually following what Jesus says for me. Let me pray for you. God, um, the story of David is crazy and chaotic and loud and all over the place, but God, I think if we're honest, our lives feel like that a lot. Our lives feel like they're all over the place 
and full of so much chaos and things we don't know how to translate. So God, will you help us just follow David's example? Help us pay attention to what we're feeling and then actually bring it to you because we're going to pray authentically. And God, we're petitioning you. We need you to move. There's things we can't fix in our world. There's things we can't fix in us. We, we need you to show up. So will you show up? And God, for some of us, um, the way we need you to show up today is just to help us not give up. God, help us to trust that you're good even when we don't see you move. God, help us to hold on to faith knowing that you promised to come through in the end. God, we love you. We're thankful for you. It's in your name I pray. Amen.